Welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Amy Schiller, and joining me on the other line, back from falconry on an embassy rooftop, <laughs> it's John McMahon. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> it's the only place I'll do falconry. Like, I have a strict no falconry except in an urban area yes. on a rooftop policy you know, in my own life, which I think we should, like, Kantian generalize to all. I think that's that's safe, you know? <laughs> safe for all involved. Best for the falcons, definitely. 100%. Yeah. Best. I mean, whomst among us <laughs> hasn't had a falconry issue. <laughs> that's a very, very this segment, very this series quandary. Yes, so we are, we are back, thanks to Amy, the instigator of our The 1% series. <laughs> <laughs> mini series, whatever. Limited yeah. series, I think that's what Limited to call series, it. yes. Um, not quite great books while Danielle is away. Um, people enjoyed, I'm sure, the the White Lotus episode that they heard like two weeks ago, but was a half hour ago for us. Yeah. Um, and the high note that that ended. Just um, to give you a little BTS <laughs> tidbit there. Yeah. <laughs> we and, do sometimes record back to back, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today, now, we're discussing Billions. Season 4, Episode 1, Chucky Rose's Greatest Game, directed by Colin Buxey, written by Brian Koppelman, David Levian, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Our IMDb summary is, Season 4 begins with Axe closing ranks. Determined to destroy Taylor, no longer U.S. Attorney, Chuck struggles to regain power. Taylor does what it takes to keep their new company afloat. And I think we'll have spoilers through Billion Season 4, Episode 1. Um, fair warning, this is the only episode of Billions I have ever watched uh, in my life. And so Amy's kind of uh, captaining our, yes. our mega yacht. And it does seem like it's the only one you're ever planning to watch. I mean, I do another one for the pod, for the content, obviously. Sure, sure, sure. But I, there's there's a bit of an origin story to this uh, this very episode. This is just also a bit of like Amy's villain origin story, too. So maybe we should start there. Absolutely. So uh, one day I was hanging out with uh, Danielle um, our, our sabbatical on sabbatical co-host Danielle yeah. and one of those situations where like you're hanging out long enough that like one of you is just like watching something on their computer and the other is you know reading the Bacchae yeah, and, uh, as, one <laughs> as one does and uh, what I had on was this episode um, and so in this episode there's um, a whole sequence of vignettes where Chuck Rhodes played by Paul Giamatti um, sort of derps through <laughs> New York City <laughs> the right word yes um, and he like, you know, bounce it. He sort of Leo DiCaprio meme walks <laughs> from like upscale restaurant to upscale restaurant um, favor trading, a plot line <laughs> that we'll delve into further. Um, the score, which again, we'll discuss is King of New York by Fun Loving Radicals. Um, not a terrible name for us as a podcasting crew. True. Um, so I have this on and it's in one of those little vignettes where Paul Giamatti is like strutting into a fancy restaurant um, off to go like do someone a favor. And Danielle looks up, looks at the screen and says, this is what you think your life is all the time, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> 
which was <laughs> show me the lie absolutely vicious <laughs> in its accuracy more so for its toss like the drive-by nature <laughs> of it um and just for a little bit of context for our listeners i know john and danielle from grad school throughout grad school i also maintain and to this day maintain a fundraising consulting practice so they would frequently hear from me like we'd be in like some you know seminar on marks and then i'd be like i have to go to this penthouse on the upper east side to like ask someone for a million dollars so everyone is just like this is you i mean after danielle's drive-by you are like literally paul giamatti reenacting the john Gotti uh incident at the end of this episode yes that's right out on the, that's on right the and i have to say that i believe that she mentions this before the central synagogue reference even <laughs> comes into play so like if the shot like put me on the operating table a la elizabeth jennings <laughs> it was when central synagogue came into the a synagogue that i myself attended not because i can afford a membership but because because in Paul Giamatti's character style, a friend of mine was their rabbi for some time. Um, This is like an incredibly expensive, exclusive synagogue in New York. Uh, My mom calls it Shabbat on Broadway. Um, (laughs) So like that comes, of course we love it from Judy. Shout out to Judy. So like that comes up. So if I'm on the operating table, just from the, like, this is, this is what you think your life is all the time. (laughs) Central synagogue comes on. That's my time of death. Like that's when Danielle completed my absolute assassination by Reed. (laughs) It was beautiful. <laughs> the most beautiful experience in not quite great books lore. I think. That's the greatest. That's like the most pure form of friendship is just like the deadly read, just like one stroke dead. Yeah. I think it's only fair. I mean, in our White Lotus coverage, we like mutually read me as the Rachel of the world, of our friend group, of academia, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, now here we only have to return the favor. Of course, of course, yeah. of course. Except your icon is Chuck Rhodes and mine is Rachel. Rachel, so. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, you know, uh, potato, plenty- potato. <laughs> yeah, home fries, hash brown. You know? <laughs> One is better, but they're both potato. <laughs> do you, do you want to do, I can't even, I can't come back from that. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm on the table. <laughs> early, early in the episode. Wow. Do you, do you want to do any like set up yes, about let me do plot this. or context for okay. this episode well, of Billions? I'm going to set up the show and then I'm going to talk. I'm going to give a little intro to the episode Please. itself. So in the show, um, there's there's two principles and then it, for this case, like two important secondary characters. So um the principles of the show are Chuck Rhodes, played by Paul Giamatti, and uh, Bobby Axelrod, played by Damian Lewis. So Chuck Rhodes is um, a federal prosecutor, um, and he comes from this, like, very, like, wealthy, powerful New York family. His dad is some, like, big dick real estate developer, whatever, whatever, longtime New York society. Um, Bobby Axelrod is a hedge funder, modeled probably on, like, a Stephen Cohen, a Stephen Schwartzman, uh, you know, one of these like masters of the any hedge funder, you know, <laughs> and one of these masters of the universe who has a um, you know passing relationship with legality, yeah. <laughs> um, and is just like pure unreal. They both are 
men of like unrelenting ambition, one mm-hmm. for money and the other for power. Mm-hmm. Because Paul, because Giamatti, Giamatti's character already has plenty of money. Right. So he just wants a lot of power. And then Axelrod is basically like, I only want power insofar as it helps me make more money. So mm-hmm. that's like Clash of the Titans, uh, like a wily prosecutor trying to go after him for like massive SEC like fuckery. And then Bobby Axelrod, Tom and Jerrying his way out of that whole situation. <laughs> um, secondary characters include Wendy, who is both the wife of Paul Giamatti and coach, advisor, in-house, like, counselor um, at Axelrod's hedge fund and actually has a relationship with Axelrod that predates her marriage to um, to Chuck Rhodes. Um, it is Wendy's presence at this hedge fund that I envision for myself when uh-huh. I think of my pivot to finance. Right. Another way that Danielle has absolutely uh-huh. ethered me. Yeah, exactly. So yes, she was right twice. Right? She's so right twice. Even if you don't aspire to Chucky Rhodes, you right. aspire to Wendy. She could have seen nearly any scene of this show <laughs> and said, this is who you think you are. <laughs> Would have been correct in devastating ways. <laughs> um, and then the other main secondary character is Taylor Mason, who comes on later, who is this like whiz kid at Axe's hedge fund then breaks away um, in the season before this to start their own hedge fund. They are gender non-binary, um, and uh, that becomes very important for this episode it in does. addition to just, like, again, tr- conceiving of themselves as, like, I want to have the more ethical hedge fund that yeah. also is, like, higher performing, which is, like, uh-huh. okay, <laughs> question mark. Yeah. Sure you do. Um, so here we are in this episode where... Um, Hedge funds, but with ESG. Of course, right. (laughs) Yeah. um, Who is the candidate who is like calling out ESG, the presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy? Yeah. Yeah, Guest guest on the pod challenge, (laughs) Vivek Ramaswamy. Anyway, so uh, at the start of season four, um, both of these principal characters have been sort of knocked from their relative positions of power. Chuck Rhodes has been dismissed for various like legal entrapment fuckery, fuckery yeah. unrelated to Axe. Um, Axe has had his world rocked by Taylor leaving to start their own hedge fund. Both are trying to exact revenge and regain dominance. It's about as simple uh-huh. as that. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, because that's that's the sophisticated ethical like tone of the show is like who can have dominance and be on top (laughs) cool um more specifically to this episode and one of the reasons that i love it so much and frankly relate to its characters (laughs) so deeply um this is the episode of television that dares to ask what if Sex in the City was actually about a disgraced prosecutor played by Paul Giamatti? <laughs> it's like when you see him bopping around yeah. all these New right. York City hospitals. Sarah Jessica Barker crossing the street. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and, and in the parlance of that show, I couldn't help but wonder, mm. instead, of the, <laughs> instead of the absolutely cursed remake <laughs> they've done, should they have instead just re made the original Sex in the City <laughs> starring Paul Giamatti in the Carrie yeah, Bradshaw yeah, yeah. role. Yeah, and so now, who are these other characters? Wags is Samantha? No, no, no. Just Paul Giamatti. <laughs> so we keep, we keep we, everyone we're else. We're keeping everyone else okay. and it's Paul Giamatti <laughs> replacing the redoubtable Sarah Jessica Parker <laughs> as the Carrie Bradshaw in this foursome. Don't you want to watch that more than anything in your life? Um. Yes. Yes, of course yeah. you do. Mm-hmm. Of course you do. Yes, that's this show. That's why. So, and, and like, I'm so fond of the like, 
sort of New York, like, scrappy socialite of it all that I honestly forgot about most of the other plot lines until I rewatched <laughs> it. Um, but now, but, like, upon rewatching, discovered that it actually slots quite neatly into the not-quite-great-books universe, especially by the, like, updated, updated portrayal of a U.S.-Russia dynamic, <laughs> um, a sort of local-global, and when it comes to these men... A very strong both and when it comes to defining their characters. Yeah. So I think, you know, the way you framed it to me before we started recording, Amy, is like the, the question for us is ultimately what is this? She said shallow show saying about capitalism, gender and power and like the both and of Axe and Chuck, I think, plays into that. So could you talk a little bit about like in their backgrounds, how they're like, you right. know, they're, they're the two genders of like masculine wealth in New York circa 2010s. Yeah, um, that's well said. Yeah, that's exactly like, right. Plot wise in this episode, how are they helping us or how are they moving, giving us the ability to, to take this show into like right. thinking about capital and gender and power? Okay, so at once, um, Axe and Axe's hedge fund, Axe Capital, their world is um, both like utterly ruthless um, about its pursuit of not just capital, but like dominance over its investment market. Yes. And bizarrely, I might even say misplacedly, like very um, gender identity conscious <laughs> in, in the way that they talk about Taylor and their pronouns and Taylor's like gender performance and gender like subjectivity yeah. <laughs> like like how does that happen you have both um very like small scale like local wheeling and dealing going on mm -hmm. and like global commodity market mm -hmm. negotiations swaying in the balance um you have both like both the the presence of like very secure wealth and the presence of, like, a kind of striving ambition in right. both of these men. Mm -hmm. um, what are the other things? And then, like, the hustling of Taylor and their firm. Right? Absolutely, yes. In the context of those other two firms, right? Right. Because, like, we get on the plot level, the axe has paid off or bought off the headhunter. Yes. Right? That Taylor had hired for their firm. Which they and Sarah, who's their COO, I think, mm -hmm. uh realize by the end of the episode and they're like ready to turn the tables and so there's like that aspect of it um and i mean you know you pointed out like the attention to gender pronouns and like they're self-conscious about it they're like correcting themselves mid-sentence they're like trying to deal with the fact that okay taylor has to perform gender in a certain way for the representatives of the shake of the mm -hmm. made up Sovereign Wealth Fund that's like vaguely modeled on Cutter, but like not exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is what I gathered from yeah. this In, one. Episode. Insert Gulf State here, right? Sure, right. Because <laughs> yeah. it is all the same, right? From the perspective of like X or from the perspective of capital. It's totally. Like one Sovereign Wealth Fund is as good as another Sovereign Wealth Fund. <laughs> yes. Um. So yes, there's that part of it, and like the way you framed it before we started recording was the show establishes this like kind of weird complex relationship weirdly complex relationship between the machismo and bro politics and dominance oriented striving or hustling of like axe or chuck or whomever with this like vaguely progressive gender ideology totally totally yes and it's not clear if the show is 
actively and intentionally like playing with that if they're trying to show the relative precarity mm. of like gender like progressivism in the in when faced with the demands of capital accumulation yeah. like it's not clear if they're being intentional about it or if they actually think that somehow they're holding both with equal <laughs> success uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so my question for you as someone who has watched the show and I haven't is that like, I know it's barely kind of in the plot of this particular episode. Right. But like the relationship between Chuck and Wendy is like, a, is of a Dom and sub, right? So yes. Wendy Dom's Chuck, do I have that correct? You do. Okay. So like my, and the way I, the reason I ask this is that it seems that like this show, from what I understand, like had actual like pro doms consult on the mm. show so that they like depicted bdsm correctly mm-hmm. so like in a way is there like this progressive depiction of kink that also gets subverted to capital as there's this occasional like progressive gender ideology but that then gets like fed back into the capital machine yes all of that is true i I have to imagine that this is like, I mean, it's not quite as bad as like Nancy Pelosi kneeling in the kente cloth, you know, <laughs> but like, I I suspect that what this is is something like this is a, you know, a thinking man's bro show, yeah. right? Like mm, the whole point mm-hmm. is to have like these elements of like enlightened portrayals of gender and sexuality as the tonic to like the real thing, which is really just about a dick measuring contest in right. of capital right. and power. Do you think that the audience, like the the target audience of this show, as enlightened bros, right, or is I work at Goldman's but I vote for Democrats, right? Is that like the imagined probably, audience? Probably. Or I think there. That's a really good question. Um, I think that there's a. Um, this is also playing to people who have a fascination with wealth in the same way that like all of the other shows we're going to discuss are but it's meant for like it's probably it's meant really for people who live in new york like there's so (laughs) much here that is so new york specific Mm -hmm. um that really feels like it's for um because white lotus like there are so many sort of like telling details that say like these people aren't really as, like, wealthy as we're sort of portraying them. But, like, our audience is not quite going to know the difference one way or another. Whereas here, I think they're just a bit sharper about how they code the level of, like, wealth and power at play. But you can only really do that in a very niche market. So I think Mm -hmm. it's for, like, you know, New Yorkers who, like, send their kids to Dalton, go to Central Synagogue, (laughs) Adele, etc. You know, and, like, fine, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'd be interested if we can look this up at later, but like how the viewership of this compares to something just in terms of pure numbers. Like, I mean, the obvious comparison for me, and I imagine from like anyone would be Succession. Yeah. Right. This is like worse Succession. Succession for people who thought that there's like too much depth and complexity to Succession. <laughs> right. To be <laughs> mean about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not wrong. No, right? you're not wrong. Yeah. Absolutely not. As I said to you before we started taping, like, the you said this is did what was your comment about the dialogue? Um, this is the worst writing I've ever seen in a television show. Um, and I've watched a lot of bad TV. Yeah, this is and this feels to me like a child, like a like a Wattpad <laughs> fanfic <laughs> about a hedge funder and a prosecutor and an oligarch. You yeah. know, like it's very broad strokes amateurish. Yeah. So it's 
Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's like it's the difference between Showtime and HBO. Like, right. And like the when the political and like libidinal and audience politics. Yeah. Of those two respective networks. Fully agree. Yeah. Fully agree. The acting, the overacting is. It's a force to be reckoned with. Um, <laughs> so I think this came up on a recent episode with Danielle when we were wrapping up season three of The Americans, right? But like I talked about like Homeland and like Homeland is the contrast um, with The Americans. So like Succession is, is to Billions as mm. The Americans is to, is to, is to Homeland. Yes. Um, and Damian Lewis is like actually perfect to have been Brody in Homeland and to be Axe in here because he is like a good actor and also willing to give these fucking ridiculous lines of dialogue, oh like, their fullest possible expression. So, like, I guess you got to hand it to him, question you, mark? You, you maybe do, in fact, got to <laughs> hand it to him. Like, the what's happening here is, like, again, because they are striving for an audience that, like, I think is a little bit more clued in, mm. but ultimately, like... It would take, like, a show about a hedge fund and a federal prosecutor would be boring as shit. Like, if you were to actually depict what's going on, it would be such a fucking right. snooze. Like, Steve Cohn's actually boring. Right. right. Is the... Right, exactly. So there's a lot of just, like, exposition that's just shoved into this, and then it's all given the shellacking of, like, <laughs> you know, just masculine posturing mm-hmm. to make it interesting and sp- yeah. spicy do you think the show takes axe and chuck seriously yes okay. i think it does um because i think it takes their their as as simplistic as their motives are i think it believes that those characters are deeply invested mm-hmm. what about wags you know what's interesting about wags so david costabile is probably the best actor on the show up there with paul giamatti maggie um, siff oh maggie siff Mm. Um, we both are Sif Sims. Of so. course. <laughs> Sif Sims, so hard to say. <laughs> Sims. <laughs> um, but David Costaville, I think, like, what he does really well is there are moments where, like, his performed bravado with wags yeah. um, falls away to show his, like, deep, at least, like, a sense of, like, deep loyalty, deep, like, caring for acts, deep, like, there's a vulnerability to him right. that is being right. compensated. So, like, the way that, that a bro can only relate to another true bro, like, after they've been drugged by um, representatives of a Russian oligarch through the sovereign wealth fund of a generic Gulf state, right? But once you pass, like, through yeah. that, that crucible, sure. then you can express true bro love. I think one of the things that struck me the most on just a pure plot level with a slight, like, curve of it greater interest to me was the fact that it's kind of just like petty bullshit and nonsense that Chuck is like doing all of these favors for. It's right. like, you know, that is like on the one hand, extremely petty. And on the other hand, like deeply affects the lives of many people. Yeah. Right? So like we have like someone whose son was committed a statutory rape for having sex with somebody who was 16 as a 20 year old. We have literally the, lo- the location of where a sovereign wealth fund, or where, a, where I'm just getting confused about my wealthy entities, sure. but like billionaire uh, charter school, right. Yeah. Is going to be located at the same time. It's like, am I going to get into like this particular, like Hanukkah? Uh, was it a Hanukkah? children's concert? Children's concert. 
right yes. for Hanukkah. Um, and like, am I going to be the first one, like yeah. private access to this, to the ski right. uh, resort? Well, so like, there's, there's just like the, the sacred and the profane, there's a place <laughs> to go right there. Right. But the way that you frame this was that like what Chuck is doing is taking care of all the things that money can't buy for all of these really wealthy people. That's exactly right. Um, so <laughs> I was right when I said that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes. No, that's like, so Chuck at this point is a power broker. So that is the guy that you go to because in the, so one of the opening scenes, he's being approached by a guy who wants, speaking of things that could affect a lot of people, a gun permit, yeah. in, which is impossible to get in New York City and like rightly so. Well, Never mind that our mayor carries one. Anyway. Uh, we're also now in a post. So Heller has happened in the world at the time that this season comes out, oh, but has good. not worked yeah. its way through. And like Bruin is obviously off in the distance. Uh, that has not yet happened in the timeline. Right. So he's being approached by this guy in this like jur- juridical context who wants a gun permit because he has horses and jewelry. But it's clear that he just like wants a gun, like just because. Um, Avatar of masculinity. Avatar, precisely per the rest of the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, in one of the like beautifully clunky lines of this episode, (laughs) you're a power broker, so broker some power. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, are you fucking serious? Shakespeare of the 21st century. Oh, it's just beautiful. Okay, so so he says that in like, that's... That is n- not a thing that money can buy because this guy clearly has money. Like, mm-hmm. if you could purchase a gun permit, he would have done that. Yes. You need some kind of poll that, like, not any rich guy can have. You need a poll that, like, someone really wired up has. Um, and uh, then what you see as Chuck goes about his adventure, and we will talk about all the places that he oh, goes you to. Sure will. Um, it's like. Uh, can I do the list of things that he has to get for people? Okay, so first he goes to ask the police commissioner, but he's not really asking the police commissioner. What he wants to find out is, what does the police commissioner Uh need? Um, And what the police commissioner needs is some way of allowing a pitcher for a little policeman's benevolent little league league team to pitch for for his team, Uh right? Um, again, a thing that money can't buy because, like, there's an age cutoff and you need some way of, like, making him younger. Uh-huh. What? Um, then he goes to a guy who needs tickets. And so the problem is, like, he could buy tickets to the Central Synagogue Children's Hanukkah service, but uh, his ex-wife's brother is a board member and won't, <laughs> like, is, like, blocking him from getting uh-huh. the tickets or yeah. something like that. So, like, he's blacklisted, so there's no way he can buy his tickets. Uh-huh. Then he goes and then some guy wants first tracks, which is, like, you're one of the first five people to mm, use the slopes, uh, yeah. the slopes at Deer Valley. Now, that's another thing where it's like, if there's only five and you're not one of those five, you can't buy a right. six. There is no sixth yeah. for you to buy. Um, the thing that gets traded by his wife is a coaching session with her, which is such a fucking flex. So unbelievable. Uh-huh. Um, and again, it's like Wendy's time is not like available on the open market. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's a side deal that she makes under so extraordinary circumstances. Is like, is it a like BDM session, a BDSM session, or is it a like coaching session, or are those the same thing? Oh wow! Way to lead up. Way to lead me into the second book yet again, John McMahon. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. That I'm was like, beautiful. I'm nothing if not a great hype man. Wow, it's fucking incredible. If you've seen the sessions that Wendy has with these hedge funders, yes, you would have to concur that they are one and the same. Okay. Um, 
they are uh, costumed differently and propped differently, yeah. but they are the same mm-hmm. dynamic um, of like, prove yourself to me, you little worm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's with also a little bit of like, you can do this. Stop being a little pussy, right. you know, um, but I believe that what she is doing, I don't think that Wendy at this point is publicly outed as a Dom. Okay. I think that is between her and Chuck at this stage and that her professional, the, a professional service that might be sought after is by a hedge funder who wants like some secret mind game played on them so that they uh-huh. perform the way Axe performs. Yeah. You know, in the market, of course. <laughs> I'm speaking strictly of investments. Yes, clearly. Um, so that's a thing that you can't get. And then you have... Um, the location of a school near a sex offender. A thing that, like, at that point, actually, there is a little bit of, like, money can buy that because at that point, Chuck can call a board member who presumably can threaten to withhold his, like, um, directional, you know, donation that, like, determines whether the project goes forward or not if they don't move the location. I don't really know if that, like, I think that's uh, one of the fantasy elements of this show where I'm like, I don't think that's really how this works. Like, I've never seen it work that way. But, sure, um, and then in the end, the way that they end up getting, <laughs> like they get the what they get is, and a again, blank birth certificate, a blank birth certificate, from the Dominican right? Which I also don't think is possible, no matter how high level a diplomat is. Like I don't, I don't think that's how that works either. But sure, you know, <laughs> so, like, they destroy someone's birth certificate, and I love the line when he gives it to the commissioner, and he goes. This one's a little bit too young. This one's a little bit too old. <laughs> referring in a way that this guy has no idea. <laughs> like, he had to move a school away from a sex offender because he had because he committed statutory rape with a 16-year-old. This one's a little too young. This one's a little too old. Hash brown home fries. You know how it yep. is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so much. So, yes, he's doing all these things that are their favors specifically because you can't buy them. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. Incredible. <laughs> I actually don't have anything more for the main discussion. Should we head into Gloss? Let's. All right. So in Gloss, I think we want to start with something you already identified, Amy, and that is uh, we have like the overarching, one of the overarching plot threads is A, the negotiations about who's going to manage the sovereign wealth fund between Taylor uh, and Axe. Yes. Right? And that intersects with John Malkovich qua Russian oligarchs. So maybe let's so please. Well, we should say one thing, which is that like the the Taylor plot line is that um they are also going after the sovereign wealth yes. fund. And early in the episode, Wag says, Oh, the Sheikh would never meet with someone like Taylor, yeah. who is like gender nonconforming, blah blah blah. Um <laughs> Taylor and their team have anticipated this. Um, and of course, in another moment of like very clunky dialogue, the COO says, uh, strap it on when uh-huh. of course they mean put on the femme drag, yeah, exactly. the like long wig and the dress mm. and the whatever to go and meet with the shake. Um, so that you appear somewhat gender conforming. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Taylor's going after the sovereign wealth fund, trying to convince them that like they have, the better potential for investment returns. And this is also because they need an infusion of capital so that um, they can make the best use of money they already have committed from Grigor Andalov, the Russian oligarch played by John Malkovich. Uh, Axe is trying to prevent this from happening. This is why we're in this situation. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start in glass then with the 
Wags conversation with the representative of the Sheikh oh because uh, you again have some thoughts about like how capital comes to stand in for yes. like other important symbols or objects. So once again, they like, <laughs> you know, the reason this is uh, kind of a funny show to podcast about is because everything is so lampshaded. <laughs> it's just like, where are we gonna like, where are we gonna unpack? It's all right fucking there. Um, so they have this moment where um, I even forget how Wags draws this analogy, but the Sheikh's representative says, "Like, are you comparing your investment fund to our holy text, the Quran?" Um, and Wags jumps right on this and says, "Like." Money is our religion mm-hmm. and our God. And right, yeah. So the, the line I have is, it's uh, he says about Acts, fees are his religion and money is his God. He is the perfect shepherd. There right? you go. Because he also made, of course, like a racist goat fucking or goat herding joke. Right, 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 right. Um, shades of Foucault in there about like pastorality, <laughs> um, the sort of pastorality. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. Pastorality of like funds, <laughs> like yeah. that's kind of interesting. Um, Again, book number two. <laughs> oh my god so real for that um so uh i mean what you have here is like again with both taylor and in this conversation with wags this display of how like all things that are supposed to be sacred are subverted to the yeah. power of capital and the pursuit of money and wealth and capital so like fuck the quran money is your religion fuck your like gender identity like it's all mm-hmm. about getting the money like that is those are the very reductive that's a very reductive commentary of this show mm-hmm. this is the thing like so wags is also rightly calling them out in a way the sovereign wealth fund and basically saying like you are trying you are investing money with us because you think we're going to get you the best return like uh-huh. you have there is not really room for like preciousness here like we all know what this project is yeah. so he's pointing out a very uncomfortable truth about capitalism, which is that it disenchants and desacralizes everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that like the, the individual character of like, okay, it's a sovereign wealth fund, but like money is money. And so they want their two and 20. Do I understand what the two and 20 means? I can guess, but I have no fucking clue. I can explain what two and 20 means. Um, Can I I make my guess? This is, this is like the Daniel dossier is like John doesn't know anything about finance. So is it like, they have to pay like 2% of like whatever they're investing is like an initial signing fee. And then the 20 is like the 20% that like the, that acts capital will take of the returns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. You've got wow. it exactly right. Look at me. Yeah. That was great. That's what four seasons of succession will do to you. Amazing. Very impressed. <laughs> um, when I become Wendy, <laughs> you can come on as an analyst. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, much like I am Rachel of the White Lotus, I am the Rudy of <laughs> oh, Billions. Oh, could be nice to yourself. <laughs> you could be at least the Mafie. <laughs> but fair enough. <laughs> I think that's your way of demurring. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm Imperial Secretary of most Amy Schiller projects. Yes. Yes, maybe Imperial Secretary of... Uh, Schiller Capital. I don't sure. know about that. It would be, have to be something cooler. But <laughs> yes. Um, Shill Cap. <laughs> yeah, we can call it that. Yes. So there's that scene. And and there's the, like, again, we talked about, like, the global stuff going on yes. here where, like, Axe comes to the embassy because Wags has been detained yes. by the... Detained. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you know, by the... Wags is detained the same way that the U.S. detains people, yes. Oof, yes. Um, by the... 
Emiratis, Saudis, uh, Qataris? Qatar, I think Qataris. Yeah. Qataris, yeah, okay. Is, I think, the analog. Um, but, like, it's it's not clear why, like, they these guys could just say, no, we're not investing with you anymore, which would be devastating enough. But, like, why would they hold, other than, like, the idea is, like, oh, maybe they're holding WAGs hostage because they want to renegotiate the fee structure and we're not moving and this is just a bargaining chip. But that would be a very yeah. severe escalation. So yeah, it's not it's, clear why they've done this. It's and- a dominance assertion plus the, like, channel actually to Malkovich is Grigor. Right. So tell us who, tell, tell us how that comes about. <laughs> Plot-wise, I have no fucking right, clue. Right, right, but, right. But, like, Grigor, uh, John Malkovich, is, like, revealed to be the man behind the curtain. Yes. Um, of the whole scheme, it seems, as a way to show that even though his money is invested with Taylor's fund, uh, like, Malkovich is still exercising power by, like, denying acts and saying, I'm ultimately, like, the power player even behind or beyond the Sovereign Wealth Fund itself. Yes, and he does this in a way that, like, again, really underscores as if we needed another one that this is ultimately a contest for domination where he's like, you know, I control this as you do acts in your considerably smaller corner of the universe, which is like, okay, like, we fucking get it, you know? Um, but yes, here we come in, and here's Malkovich. John, what's your take on Malkovich as an oligarch? Oh my god, like, he's actually the perfect person to play a Russian oligarch for the show Billions, as I've come to understand it after one episode. Brutal. In that, uh, it's fucking terrible. Like, Ugh. the accent is bad, uh, it's like... There's Malkovich, like, being Malkovich where it can work, right? Like, mm-hmm. in a couple of instances. And then there's John Malkovich where, like, he overpowers and, like, makes the show actively worse. And this is, I think, a paradigmatic example of that. Um, it's just, like, it's just bad all around. It's, like, the worst John Malkovich possible. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, you know, like, my, of course... Uh, complaint is that they he's not actually russian and this is a this is a keller thought this is a danielle thought right like why does john malkovich keep getting like mm. you know cast as russian oligarchs when he's not like he's from like the fucking midwest mm-hmm. uh i had to look this up because i was so incensed by this this is all like fan fiction right uh, that i'm about to spin out but Keller has informed, has told this story about how, like, he thinks that, like, the Gorn got beat out for some role as playing a Russian by John Malkovich. And so my headcanon is that this is the role. And and what a loss for us all, really. Yeah. Uh, Except that, like, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning, which is actually Lev Gorn as an actor is too good to be the Russian oligarch reading this dialogue in this show. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, like... I also have no doubt that there is something interesting to learn about the, like, Russia-Gulf relation as it relates to oil markets. Like, I feel like they're touching on something that's, like, I'm sure, like, interesting and and deep over there. Yeah, I mean, even, like, witness, you know, like, how the war... war in Ukraine by right. Russia, like the invasion has a What's going on in Syria like, and like Syria, Syria protecting that yes, regime. And Russia involved in Syria and right. the Wagner group involved in Syria and all of that vis-a-vis OPEC. Like these are things that happen still right. Right, in 2023, right. several years after this episode. So this is what I mean by like, this is a show for people who are like pretty clued in, but like still kind of smooth brain, you know, like they want their TV to be smooth, smooth brain. Smooth brain is exactly. You know what I mean? Like they, they want there to be enough signifiers of like, like knowledge about the world, being included, like knowing what things are, knowing what they mean. But like they don't want to have to like parse the actual like developments mm-hmm. that are going on about those things. Yeah. 
witness how they treat the Saudi Russian oligarch or the Gulf Russian oligarch relationship to like oil and investment markets. Yeah. Yeah. But there you go. But yeah, I so I watched this and one last thing about Malkovich is like, I was like, oh, I forgot there was like a Russian oligarch plot on the show. Um, and then I watched it and I'm like, Jesus, this is like an American's episode in like child crayon drawing form. <laughs> like, it's so crude. It's so yeah. stupid and reductive. Yeah. Oh, but, well. I mean, there is, and I think, you know, you identified this in the conversation we had before we started recording, a way in which this episode is trying to perhaps ask or tell something. It's like the smooth brained, you know, what is the nation state in an era of globalized capital? Like that is, yes. that is happening in this episode. Right. What is sure. the nation state? Like, look at how capital destroys everything it touches, blah, blah, blah. But also like, look, Zabars. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think, um, yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about music in this episode? We have to. I mean, there's so many places to start. What was your favorite musical? I mean, moments? King of New York, of course, mm-hmm. is just like they use it perfectly. It's a great through line through Chuck's plot. It's a great through line that like wraps up at the end of the show. Yeah. Extremely neatly, right? With the line in the song about Gotti. And then the, because they've done the dialogue about Gotti and it's, you know. Bingo. Yeah. Um, I would just have to suspect that like Koppelman wrote that whole arc, like with that song in mind. <laughs> um, Brian Koppelman is the son of a like legendary music exec um and i think himself was like a music group manager of several bands <laughs> maybe also himself had like an a and r role so like he he knows his music stuff and sometimes there's way 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 too much of it where it's like just to go back to malkovich for a second like part of what makes that so cringe is he's like i had to learn english watching the happy days no sweat fonzie and you're just like just kill me like mm-hmm. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. so gratuitous and awful and there's so like this is a billion tick is like there's always going to be some weird one-off reference to like a band a lyric a tv show from like somewhere between like you know I'm going to say 1961 to, like, 1989. (laughs) And see, that's the place where I actually do believe it is about the 1% of finance bros in New York City. That's their milieu. A (laughs) hundred percent. Absolutely correct. Well, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, one of the writers Mm -hmm. on the show, creators of the show, was the deal book columnist for the New York Times for many years. So, like, he does know he does know from what they speak. (laughs) (laughs) He sure does. So so we we have the Al Green. We have. Oh, my God. Wait, the Al Green singing Al Green. Oh, that story. That is one of the best shots of the show okay. like shot from below with like Paul Giamatti clapping and like that sort of rictus grin on his face is so beautiful beautiful is a word <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love the clapping I love the air drumming I love it all I will say him mansplaining Al Green to the fucking concealed I want to carry permit bro like racehorse uh, owner <laughs> that was is you know that was that was real <laughs> that happened <laughs> these it was to another dude you know True. there there is i mean i think that guy is stupid enough to not know al green's life <laughs> al green's biography yeah 
And then, of course, like, and I, th- I think the thing that, like, from what I gather of this character that was so on point is that he uses that whole digression to make a moralizing point, which he will then, like, sacrifice on the altar of, like, capital and favors. Oh, very perceptive, John, because that's exactly right. And it's just like, this guy could not give less of a fuck what you think about his desire for a gun permit. He wants to know, can you do it or mm-hmm. not? It's a real binary situation. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite lampshade musical moment is the opening scene of... <laughs> Um, where Wags is, like, in the club with the, uh, like, escorts or sex workers, like, and also the representative of the Sheik and, like, you know, whatever the relationships are. And there's this song, which I don't know if it's a real song or they made it for the show, just as, like, all about uh, a guy with the tall, small dick. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a riff on uh, Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. Mm-hmm. Uh, except that then it's uh, don't want to eeny weeny teeny weeny short dick man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's poetry, really. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The true poetry of our age. And this is while Wags is correcting someone on Taylor's pronouns yeah. as sex workers I, writhe in I the background. Say, that was a beautiful moment. <laughs> that, that I'm not even like bullshitting. That I was like a genuine, like clever chuckle that I, yeah. that I offered yeah. there you to go. the universe. There you go. Our introduction to Axe in this episode, he's wearing a Motorhead t-shirt. Um, five, you know, the, less than five minutes later, someone makes a ACDC and 78 <laughs> joke to exactly your like bounding of like cock rock in a particular era um i thought that was like spot on as he gives some of like the worst lines of dialogue i've ever heard right so like the chef um chef what's the chef chef ryan chef ryan i assume he's a recurring yes okay chef ryan recurring character brings breakfast like well prepared we got like two different kinds of bread for toast we have whoever whatever else is in this like nice basket a better breakfast you can get at the white lotus i dare say Uh, 100 percent better than the white lotus especially because it's made for you at home anyway please go on and like uh axe is too busy not gonna have any breakfast this morning you point out like he could have texted chef ryan seriously that i had one of the security yeah if i'm chef ryan i'm like why the fuck did i bring this tray up here but like obviously if you work for a guy like X you're well past that as yeah. a as a even a question in your mind but yeah. yes there was just something awkward about the choreography <laughs> and like Damian Lewis does look great in a tight t-shirt like no doubt, don't no get doubt. me wrong yep. uh, and then like in his motorhead t-shirt asks him do I look like I need to fan the fire <laughs> and then like power bro walks out of the out of the room and scene I mean you know can you get any more whatever that is? You know, John, this series is a, it's a summer series. Yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's not meant to be a thinker. <laughs> and I think on that score, it succeeded vividly. Uh, undeniable. <laughs> you pointed out this is also an episode about philanthropy. Of course, right. There's got to be a philanthropy subplot everywhere, especially on the 1% series. Um, yes, there is that. There are two... Um, invocations of board member power. Um, again, a, a nod to like you, the writers of the show do understand like what the actual signifiers of power and influence are in the world. Um, so one is when, um, one of the fixers that Chuck's talks to is like, I need these tickets because my, the aforementioned, uh, ex-brother-in-law, board of Central Synagogue, blah, 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 blah. Um, the other is when Axe is on the board of a charter school, super on brand, billionaire board of a charter school. Yep. That sounds right. He has a philanthropy advisor named Sean Ailes, who I track throughout the series and track their shenanigans. And um, Ailes is great as a character because he's just like completely 
um, like servile to whatever acts wants, which is like, <laughs> yeah, that is how you succeed as somebody's philanthropy advisor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, acts just like flexes because he's like, I'm a board member of that school and I can probably, you know, influence its location. And then they <laughs> do hand wave. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think one of my favorite aspects of this episode was the way that the parking ticket oh like God. becomes this like MacGuffin that Chuck thinks is this like power ticket power token and nobody fucking wants it and Maggie Siff is Wendy really is clear that nobody fucking wants this parking pass yes it's so beautiful yeah I have to say like parking solidarity uh I I have I have found myself in the crosshairs of um, the parking cartel <laughs> many a time. Do we need that many hydrants in New York? Question mark. I don't know. All I know is... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking questions. Who put them there? Exactly. Why are they there? <laughs> are they even functional? <laughs> you know, um, all I know is... Why do they want to make you think you need those fire hydrants? See, this is this is where we're taking the podcast. <laughs> the intellectual Carlson, dark Carlson. web. <laughs> yes. Um, is it the woke mind virus that makes you think you need all these fire hydrants? That you need to obey parking laws? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was like, damn, man, a park anywhere pass. That's sweet. But of course I do, because I'm a plebe, you know? Like, I'm a fucking, I'm a dumb plebe driving a 23-year-old car. <laughs> like, here's Chuck trying to get these people who, there's like that, there's two beautiful moments, and one is where, um... Where the aforementioned, like, he's like, hey, Wendy, like, go offer him my park anywhere pass. And she just gives this cutting, like, Contemptuous. look and, like, wave of her hand of just, like, I don't even want to look at that thing. Like, please don't, like, do not come to me with that. And then uh, there's that moment with, I think it's Donnie Deutsch, who's the guest. Ah, uh, it is. You're yes. right. I was trying to figure out who that was. It's Donnie right. Deutsch. And he goes, I already have one of those for each of my cars <laughs> it's actually really nicely underplayed to just be like you stupid <laughs> like bug <laughs> like are you <laughs> kidding me with this shit yeah. as if that would ever be a concern for someone of that wealth so yes you have that and then you've got the guy who like speaking of things money can't buy like he doesn't he the guy who can introduce you to the dominican ambassador he doesn't have that kind of wealth right. he actually does worry about three thousand dollars worth of parking tickets and then you find someone at that economic echelon and chuck's face lights up oh my god because he finally can yeah. use this token oh my god it really makes me wonder like what's he gonna do for his next power broker <laughs> he's already <laughs> yeah, he's he's out he's out he's out <laughs> It's just spent. It's very Chad God Yah, if I may use another Jewish <laughs> reference. This is from the Passover Seder. It's like the the you know the stick that beat the dog that ate the cat that like scratched the goat that my father bought for two zuzim. Like the two zuzim is the parking pass <laughs> for fucking sure. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite quote from this episode? Oh my god. Save your fine sable for someone whose fortunes warrant it. <laughs> Put that on a pillow for me, girl. <laughs> oh, my God. Also, like, so overwritten, so fucking stupid. But, like, save your fine... It, it really was Shakespearean. Save your fine sable for someone whose fortunes warrant it. Ugh. Ugh. Shout out to Barney Greengrass. Shout out to the sable. Shout out to the locks, eggs, and onions there. Mm, 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 mm. So I think 
I made fun of the writing in the like Axe refuses breakfast scene, but I think the worst writing in the entire episode is the Chuck and his dad uh, scene. I wish we didn't have to talk about that scene. It's (laughs) so terrible. We don't have to any further, but just the like it covered all its like daddy issues plus money plus power plus like masculine bravado dick swinging plus like kink shaming plus like all of the things um and you know have some bad war metaphors on top of it all totally it's i mean that dad is clearly like all of he's supposed to be the you know the unwoke villain of the show right the one who is just like so naked in his pursuit of power and so like cruel and unforgiving and da 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 that like he doesn't even doesn't even respect my kinks man (laughs) (laughs) it's like okay okay and i'm not sure if like the worst line is the one about the siege or uh chuck's response about you know uh, him getting vengeance or that Chuck's being used, his dad says, uh, used the way a bathroom piano player uses poppers. poppers. Um, just no thanks. Um, yeah. Like, is the show, we can ask this of several things. Is the show in on the joke of its bad dialogue? No. Okay. okay. No, I don't think so. Is it in on the joke of like its own racism? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, look who created the show. It's, Three middle-aged white guys who, like, again, it really shows how, like, there are certain social issues that, like, will come to the the foreground for Mm -hmm. people of privilege. And then there are some that are just completely illegible to them. Oh, we'll get there in in theory, Chef. No doubt, no doubt. All right. Anything else in gloss before we move to the centerpiece of the episode in some ways? Uh, Spoiled milk. Spoiled milk. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we're heading to Spoiled Milk. You described this, uh, Amy, as an episode that's just full of references for the 1%. Of course. Uh, so, so let me, um, certainly the 1%, but also, like, specifically the New York 1%. Yes, yes. Right? So, um, there's stuff that we've talked about regarding, like, being on boards and what kinds of boards people would be on. So here, but here are the things that are really relevant. So, and also Central Synagogue. So, like, I'm going to start there. Central Synagogue, that's where, like, the louders belong, like of Estee Louder yeah. and people of that ilk. Like I believe Len Blavatnik, another Russian oligarch, belongs to that. Like even you could never go to that shul, but like you kind of have to belong to that shul. You know what I mean? It's like one of those. Um, so that's like a very telling reference. The restaurants in play, like not all of them are super expensive. It's not yeah, really like about I've, that. I've eaten at Barney Greengrass. Exactly. Yeah. But they are kind of like iconic places of power yeah. um so like barney greengrass um the eat is a zabar's offshoot cafe uh, okay so those are the first two and like it makes sense that that's where the public servants would be eating because they're like expensive but not super like lavish right, right? Mm-hmm. then the next one is michael's um and that's where he sees donnie deutsch and mm-hmm. that's where that's a very like legendary power lunch spot The last two are the pool and the grill. I think one of those has since closed, but those are like the twin restaurants of the renovated Four Seasons building. Ah, okay. Um, And those are like, I've eaten at the grill before. Somebody took me there when I finished my 
um, PhD. And like, you can get a prime rib. I'm pretty sure it's like over a hundred dollars. <laughs> like you can get like appetizers there. And again, this is very middle class of me, dear. But like, like if you want to order a starter, you are beginning in the thirties, right? Like it's just, you are going to rack up a crazy bill, yeah. but you won't even care. You're, you want to do Tableside Cherries Jubilee, as did I. <laughs> like, you want to see? So we're talking more expensive than like the post defense. Like we're at the bar under Penn Station. A little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I paid for that one. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it's a little, little more upscale than like the chicken wings in Miller High Life. But no disrespect, still made me so happy. Um, both things can make you happy. You could my, you know, that was they say in Filter on the Roof. You can love a poor restaurant as well as a rich restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> um there was one other oh the so again when we talk about the things money can't buy those are the things that the one percent get fascinated by first tracks at deer valley yeah. yeah that's real that's like a very real thing where that, is deer valley oh god i think it's in utah okay um like yeah super exclusive expensive right ski because resort. they have a fucking private jet so it doesn't matter if it's like in the rockies i was like what like great skiing is there in the greater new york area yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you're right park city yes right so like again just like the the right specificity right because it's not like oh i really want like slope passes for the seasons like no i want like <laughs> the you have to have some knowledge of how the world of the one percent operates to have something like you know, the one person, the like the first tracks at Deer Valley yeah. as your signifier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned Wendy's wardrobe. Oh, my God. Oh, my dream wardrobe. I mean, the blue. Oh. So this goes. So Succession comes out and people talk about Succession and the wardrobe there is like stealth wealth. Yeah. Um, but also the thing about them is like. Yeah, there's not a lot of visible labels, but also the kids don't dress particularly stylishly. No. And Wendy strikes that balance. Shiv is somewhat the exception at times. Sometimes. Yeah. But her clothes don't always fit very well. And here's Wendy, and it's just like, you've got, like, the perfect necklines, the perfect cuts. They're all, like, solids. So they don't draw that much attention to themselves, but they are, like, striking. Mm -hmm. They are well-made. They are, like... Just lovely. The silhouettes. I mean, and it's Maggie Siff, so yeah. like she could wear a paper bag. But in this case, she's wearing like what is probably, I'm going to guess like an $800 like cashmere sweater and an equally expensive pair of pants. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, fuck yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. That's just like <laughs> a day. <laughs> Having a normal one. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. Anything else in spoiled milk? I mean, do we talk about Wendy in general? Sure. Like, just her carriage, her confidence, <laughs> her everything. Be my mommy. <laughs> More ways than one. Yeah, be my mommy. I want to, do I want to be you? Do I want to fuck you? Yes. Like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, heading to the cave. Let's do it. All right. So in the cave, we have uh, an Amy suggestion. So I will turn it over to you. You thought we should maybe think about uh, Thomas Piketty. Sure. I mean, again, uh, so basic, but yeah. as befits the ethos of the show, <laughs> let's read, let's, let's all have them, let's all read the book about inequality and the compounding of inequality yeah. that they are all participating in with varying degrees of glee. Mm -hmm. That's about it. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's the, I think the compounding is the right way to frame it, given like the discussion over what are the terms going to be um, of the fee structure for the sovereign wealth fund and how does that uh, perpetuate generational wealth. So yeah, I think, I think Piketty works. Mm -hmm. All right. I've got some theory ships. Do you have any you'd like to offer before we get going? Uh, yes, I have one that is like not going to be very recognizable to our readers, but um, it, I was reminded of it uh, when we talked about the Qatari sovereign wealth stand-in and the desecration of the Quran. Um, recommending my colleague at Dartmouth, Devin Singh, um, who has books about like virtue and money and financial systems have come come to replace like virtue and re- replace and recreate virtue economies around like guilt and sin and virtue and like goodness and how you like purchase those things etc. Amazing. Are there any characters you want to assign Devin's work to in particular? Uh, I guess Wags, you okay. know, would be the most sensible <laughs> one here, but maybe Taylor also. Ah, I like that. Yeah. All right, so I've got a few. Um, I want to give Gail Rubin to Chuck. Mm-hmm. Both Gail Rubin on, like, the sex gender system and Gail Rubin writing about BDSM. And I think we just give those to Chuck and instruct him to, like, I don't know, A, be like beat with the Gail Rubin book by uh, by Wendy and also see if he might be able to excavate some thinking about like gender power and uh, the economics realm. Are you planning to dom Chuck about this reading assignment? I mean, I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to watching. <laughs> <laughs> don't hate it. Um, second on the theory ship list is I think Taylor could use maybe some Nancy Fraser in the sense that like you made the point earlier that this is a show that tells us that like in this verified air of the 1%, there are going to be some like symbolically progressive things that have at least a little bit of substance to them. Yeah. But like, it's very neoliberal, like very neoliberal feminism and like Nancy Frazier's writing about neoliberal feminism, I think really like rings true to that. Big time. Um, and like, you know, we even have like kind of stereotypical like girl boss characters like Sarah, right? Is like the kind of ideal girl boss. We have Taylor is like the non-binary leader of this hedge fund, et cetera, et cetera. So I think maybe we give some Taylor, uh, give Taylor some Nancy Frazier. And lastly, I think Axe and Wags, but like also Chuck is involved in this whole like deal yeah uh, with the charter school i think we give them some david harvey on like the geography of neoliberalism um and think about like how it you know neoliberal capitalism like transforms cityscapes the urban sphere like the public all of this uh that would be very relevant to a previous plot on the show where they um i don't know do a do a private equity cash out of some kind on this like uh, town the where they send a cot. Send a Yeah, I have referencing. I have to go back and watch this, but it's basically like they um, promise to pump a bunch of money into like build a casino and build like a sort of gambling economy in this town, and then had to like back out for some reason, and then they like left a trail of devastation in their wake. Yeah. I don't know. You know what I mean? Seems appropriate. Yeah, and it's funny that Taylor is like trying to sell themselves as like, yeah, I was involved in that, but I felt bad about it. <laughs> that is their right? that's their exact Danzig. It's like speaking of like music references, like naming a character Danzig is amusing. To of me. course, of course, no, that is their entire sales pitch, and like, of course, because that's the best it gets. That's as good as it gets in this situation. Of like, yeah, but I felt really bad about it. It's like, well, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, and uh, yeah, so those are my theory ships. Yeah, I love it. Which maybe takes the show a bit too much seriously and not face value. You know what, though? I bet that the creators, at least Koppelman, would like read one of those, or has. Okay. Yeah. 
That's very Brian Cobbleman, come on Matt Quake Books <laughs> Challenge. <laughs> All right. I think that that is where we're going to end this episode. We've been podcasting for a very long time this afternoon. I'm very proud of us. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, unlike the 1%, we really work hard. <laughs> 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 yes, indeed. So thank you to Danielle. Thank you, of course, producer Amy for coming on the other side of the glass yet again. Yes. Um, up next, we've got a Young Pope episode coming up on Thursday. And then there might be more The 1% limited series content from Amy and I coming up later this Certainly summer. no shortage of episodes to choose from <laughs> along those no, lines. No lack there. All right. So thank you for listening. And until next time, this has been Not Quite Great Books, a TV Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Bless FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. Welcome to Not Work. <laughs> it's hard. It's I screwed up frequently. Count me out. Three, two.